Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. <laughs> I've, I've got it down. <coughs> we made it last week, barely, to verse 17. For in it, what's it? Let's back up to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The it of verse 17 is the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I had a long debate with myself all week. I don't know if you're like me. I debate with myself all the time. Uh, My first inclination was to spend all of today on verse 17. Because verse 17 is the key to the whole book of Romans. But I then decided that if I did that, what I would be doing is teaching the rest of the book of Romans in order to illuminate what verse 17 really means. So we're not going to spend all of our session on verse 17, just a little bit of it, so that we know what we're dealing with when we work our way through the rest of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is about the gospel. The gospel is how we as sinful human beings can be made right before God. God is a holy God. Two weeks ago when we started this, we mentioned Martin Luther, the uh, Catholic monk who spent his life worrying that he had not measured up to the righteousness of God. He would go to confession for three hours a day, every day. The priest that he was confessing to wanted him to go away. Come back when you've really done something that merits confessing. But Martin Luther knew that the scripture says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he knew he hadn't done it. He knew that before God, he was not righteous and it wasn't until he was studying the book of romans and this verse that he realized that the righteousness that he needs is not his righteousness fixed but christ righteousness in him and that is the difference that he understood that drove the protestant reformation It was driven by a renewed understanding of the doctrine of justification. What does it take to be right before God? Let's look at these words and take them apart for a little while. Righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, if I have some standard and you meet that standard, you are righteous. You know, I can have a standard for building codes. I can have a standard for driving. I can have a standard for something. And if you meet it, you're righteous. If you don't, you're not. End of story. But biblically, we know that the standard of righteousness is God himself. God, who is a holy God, will not let sin enter his presence. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and we'll spend more time in the weeks to come talking about Adam and Eve, actually the months to come, it's not for several months. When they fell, they lost the relationship that they had with God, and I will argue in just a moment that all of humanity's quest for various religions is an attempt to restore that relationship. And we do it by making up things. More about that in just a moment. So the righteousness of God is his righteous standard by which he judges all of humanity. And we fail the story. 
For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What is faith? Well, my favorite verse, without faith it is impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe two things, that God exists and that it's better to do things God's way. Well, that's a loose translation. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is not wishful thinking. You know, I have faith that the Cowboys are going to win. Wait, they're not playing today. (laughs) Shot that faith down right there. Oftentimes, people think of faith as just wishful thinking. I hope something happens. Faith is believing the promises of a God who is a promise-keeping God. God has kept his promises in the past, he will keep his promises in the present, and he will continue forever to keep his promises. Faith is understanding who God is and believing and acting on that understanding. Without faith, it is impossible, not difficult, not, you know, rare it is impossible to please god for the in the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith that's actually taken from habakkuk 2 4 where it says see he is puffed up his desires are not upright it is talking about babylon per, and specifically the babylonian king he is puffed up but The righteous will live by his faith. What does it mean to live by faith? It means to trust God at his word. So, what do we understand? What did Martin Luther understand? This passage teaches us about the righteousness of God and what it takes to be saved. And here it comes. It is a righteousness that is imputed, it is given to us. We will see this numerous times in the book of Romans. Abraham did this and it was credited to him. It was his account had that value of righteousness. What we believe, what I believe, what the scripture teaches is that the only way we as sinful human beings can enter the presence of a holy God is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, given to us. So why did this start the Reformation? What did the Catholics believe about this? Well, first off, we have to understand that the Catholics view the idea of imputed righteousness as an affront to God. What does that mean? Well, let me see if I can illustrate it for you. First off, we we have to understand that illustrations are just illustrations. When you get to talking about the doctrine of justification, there's cliffs all over the place. But with that in mind, let me try to illustrate what the Catholics believe. Some people want to simplify the whole thing and say, oh, we believe in grace... uh, Uh, salvation by grace and they believe in salvation by works they believe in the necessity of grace that's why they have seven sacraments you have to have grace in order to be saved they are not pelagians but what they believe is that the protestant position is making god into a liar let me illustrate i want to drink a coke Oops, I have a Sprite. I want to be righteous before God, but I'm not a Coke, I'm a Sprite. I am not righteous, I am unrighteous. I've got an idea.
Here we go. Aha. There. It says Coke. I have a Coke. If you're a Catholic, that's what you believe the doctrine of imputed righteousness is doing. I know that's not a Coke. You know that's not a Coke. And if I said it was a Coke, I'm lying. God knows we're not righteous. You know you're not righteous. So to tell somebody you're righteous is a lie. And God cannot lie. Huh. So what do they do? Well, it's quite simple. The Catholics believe that at baptism, the taint of original sin is removed. You are no longer outside a state of grace. doesn't necessarily mean you're saved, but at least you're in the right direction. Unless, of course, you commit mortal sin, and then you're back into original sin. Here comes the hard part. That's why I have napkins up here. What they believe is that throughout your life, God in his grace pours his righteousness into you. And at the end of your life, if you've done everything you're supposed to do, if you've accepted the grace, God declares you to be righteous because you are righteous. I declare this to be a Coke because I have infused Coke into this can. And that's what they believe it takes to be saved. So if you ask a good Catholic who knows what they're talking about, are you saved? What will they say? I hope so. Because in order for God not to be a liar, if he's going to declare you to be righteous, you've got to be righteous. You have to be that which he declares you to be. Well, we believe that what God sees, God the judge sees, is the righteousness of Christ. Yet, as Martin Luther says, we are still sinners, yet we are righteous. And that drives the Catholics crazy. Because you can be one or the other, you can't be both. We will have lots and lots of discussions about this as we continue through the book of Romans. But remember, if you leave here today thinking that I can pour enough righteousness into my life that I can be saved, you're going to be in trouble. Because what happens if halfway through my life some of this gets poured back into here? Well... Work harder. Now, they do believe in grace. Don't get me wrong. It is grace that fills this can. But it has to be done before you can be declared righteous. A simplified way of looking at it, and it is just a simplification, is that we believe you are justified and you spend your life being sanctified, working out, in your everyday life, what God has put in. The Catholics believe that you are sanctified, and once you complete the process of sanctification, you are justified because you are, in fact, righteous. And that's the difference between the two views. So, where does this take us? We can quit now and go home. We'll quit now in about 30 weeks and go home. Because we're going to spend all the rest, at least until chapter 8, talking about the doctrine of justification. And then chapters 12 and following are, what does it mean in your life that you are justified? But there's a problem. In order... Before you, in order for you to accept the good news, you have to acknowledge 
the bad news. Our problem today and our problem throughout all of history is that we think we're okay in and of ourselves. So the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 are going to go about destroying any idea that you might be righteous in and of yourself. The key phrase in all of this is, you are without excuse. We will see it today, and we'll see it in the weeks to come. You think that because of this, God won't hold it against you. No, you are without excuse. You think that because you didn't have the actual stone tablets of the law, that you're not guilty. No. I think I'll have some Sprite. <laughs> so, we are going to start today with the bad news. Romans 1, 18. The rest of Romans chapter 1 is, in my opinion, one of the most important passages for understanding the world today, in the past, in the future. It explains to us Everything we need to know about why people in this country worship this idol, in this country they worship that, in this country they worship nothing. Why do they do that? It also helps us address the question that is asked all the time, what about the poor native in Africa who has not heard the gospel? How can God hold him accountable for something that he never had an opportunity to hear. I will tell you, if you really understand this, it's going to bother you. If it doesn't bother you, you don't really understand it. And I'm going to tell you the question that I'm going to ask at the very end of the lesson. And I'm going to tell you the answer to it. And that is, who is this chapter talking about? Is it talking about those really bad people? You know, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Pol Pots. Name your favorite really bad person. No, don't do it. We are not going to talk politics. Is it talking, is it talking about those people? We all know those people, right? And the answer is no and yes. It is talking about those people. But what it's really talking about is all of humanity apart from God. All of them. Everyone. Well, what about the, I, I work with a person. They're the nicest person in the world, and they're a hardcore atheist. Aren't they okay? No. Now, it may take us till chapter 2 to deal with that issue. But the end of the whole story is going to be, they are without excuse. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, suppress the truth. Here's the picture. The truth is here. And all of humanity is working as hard as it can to push it out of the way. And what does that produce? What does that merit? It merits the wrath of God. Now, we like talking about the love of God. We like talking about the grace of God. We like talking about the mercy of God. We'll even settle with talking about God being all-powerful, although we're not sure how that works out because there's still bad things in the world. We're not real keen on God being everywhere because he might see us when we're doing things we don't want to do. But, you know, on the list of things, there's the good attributes and there's the ones we'll kind of tolerate and they're, they're the ones that we don't want anything to do with. And one of those is the wrath of God. The gospel cannot be understood apart from understanding the wrath of God. Does God just get mad 
lose his temper and zap somebody? I mean, go back to Greek mythology, okay? The Greek gods, that's all they seem to do. You know, you didn't give me the proper offering, you're not going to be able to take Troy, okay? Go read the Iliad, it's in there, okay? You didn't give me the proper offering, you're not going to make it home for a long time, the Odyssey. Go read your Greek mythology. It's all gods getting ticked off because humanity didn't do things the way they thought it ought to be done. Is that all we're talking about when we talk about the wrath of God? If you look it up in the dictionary, it says, wrath is strong, vengeful anger or indignation, (laughs) retributory punishment for an offense or a crime. Divine chastisement. If you actually look it up in a biblical dictionary, the wrath of God is the divine judge's righteous retribution and personal revulsion evoked by moral evil. What we sometimes think is that God looks at sin and he blinks. Oh, it's not that important. You, you, you've been there, right? Most of you have had kids, grandkids, something. You know, the kid does something, and you go, oh, I didn't want to see that. I'll pretend that didn't happen. I'll pretend my child didn't just do that. And that's what we think about God. And that's what many of us call grace, the fact that, gra- that God Oop, I didn't see that one. Oop, I didn't see that one. God saw it. He saw it all. He saw every piece of it. He saw the beginning of it. He saw the condition of your heart that produced it. He saw it all. And he is a righteous God. He has told you, don't step over that line, and you willfully intentionally, with malice of forethought, stepped over that line. What is God supposed to do? (sighs) Oh, well, humans will be humans. It's no big deal. If he did that, he is no longer a righteous God. The righteousness of God requires the wrath of God. He cannot treat righteous behavior and unrighteous behavior in the same way or he is not a holy God. God's wrath is his righteous indignation, his righteous anger directed toward Sin and those who sin. I'm going to keep talking until somebody gets mad enough to ask me a question. (laughs) Sure. When God shows his wrath, is it going to be later? Or, I mean, when can it happen for people that don't confess their sins? How can they be wrong? Yes. Good question. Her question was, when does God show his wrath? Okay, the idea that a lot of people have is, okay, we're living our lives. Okay, some of us are good, some of us are bad. Some of us are believers, some of us are not. And we die. Huh? Some of us are bad and think we good. Whatever. Any combination thereof. So we die. And we show up at... The bench, the dock, if you're a nice English person, that's where the judge sits. And the judge looks at it, and he has a list. Oh, Candy did this, and Candy did that. Hmm, that's pretty good. And at the end of the day, zot, there's the wrath of God. Or, come on in, there's the blessing of God. The reality is... The wrath of God is being revealed 
day by day in the exact same way that the grace of God is being revealed day by day. The unbelieving community thinks, we'll talk about this much later, the unbelieving community thinks that the fact that I am not being zapped the moment I sin proves that there is no God or there is no wrath or there is a God, there is wrath, but it's not coming my direction. What the scripture teaches us is that his patience, his long-suffering in delaying the wrath is God giving us an opportunity to repent. It is not a weakness on his part. It is not overlooking things on his part. It is his loving kindness giving us an opportunity to repent. Don't view it as you're being let off the hook. It is fascinating to me as you read the scripture, most of the time people sin and they don't get zapped. Okay? Let's just face it. They don't get zapped. Now, sometimes in the scripture, later, they do get zapped, and it's very clear because of this, that occurred. Now, sometimes they do things, and they do get zapped, and it shocks us. In fact, we think it's not fair. Remember the Ark of the Covenant. It had been captured by the Philistines was retrieved and was being brought back. It was on a cart pulled by ox, I believe. And they hit a bump, and the ark started to fall off. And the priest, in the most righteous movement he thinks he could do, reached up to stop it from falling on the ground. And God zapped him then and there. Why? He wasn't supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. Ever. But it was about to fall on the ground. Do you think the ground is unholy? God made that too. But the real problem is that Ark was not supposed to be on that cart. God had given them very clear instructions on how to carry the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You put the long poles in it, and you carry it on the poles. It shocks us when we see the wrath of God. But when we don't see the wrath of God, sometimes we think we've gotten away with it. Ooh. Ooh. Her comment was, sin has its own punishment. Come back next week, and you will hear that lesson. Why? Because next week's lesson begins with, and God gave them over. You want to know what the wrath of God is, how it is demonstrated? He lets you do what you want to do. Wait a minute, that sounds pretty good. No, it's not. That's next week's lesson. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is it that warrants God's wrath being displayed? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, if we have any closet feminist in here, this doesn't mean that women are righteous. Okay? In and of themselves. I better throw that in. This is all of humanity. All of humanity. Because of their ungodliness. What does ungodliness mean? No, it's not being unclean. I mean, you know, godliness is next to cleanliness. That's not in the Bible. You know that, right? Hmm? Without God. Okay? God has given us a responsibility. We'll see this in just a moment. What is our responsibility? To give glory to God. We don't do that. We're not doing things God's way. We are God-less. We are acting as if there is no God. 
There are very few actual hardcore atheists in the world today. They're there. I've met them. There's lots of them. But relatively speaking, you take a poll, there's very few of them. There are lots of practical atheists. There is a God, and I don't care. There is a God, but he's a nice guy, and I can do whatever I want. There is a God, but who, I mean, who's he to tell me what to do, right? I am an autonomous human being. The dignity of humanity requires that I have the right to do my own thing. If God wants me to do this and I want to do that, well, obviously God wants me to do what I want to do, right? No. That is ungodliness, unrighteousness. It is looking at God's standard and saying, eh, I think I'll do something else. You ever see a, well, let's get it to somebody else, okay? You ever see a child do that? Child, don't do that. And what do they do? It inspires them to do it. More about that in about two or three chapters. I always liked the story that Augustine tells in his biography of his conversion, where he talks about as being a young man and sneaking into the neighbor's yard to steal a pear. And he says, I didn't like pears. I just wanted to steal it. It was literally the forbidden fruit. Ungodliness and unrighteousness brings about the wrath of God. But what does that do? Why? Because in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Let's keep going. What is the truth? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that God has made, so they are without excuse. How do we suppress the truth? First off, we have to acknowledge that the truth is there. God created the world and everything in it. I'm not even going to get into a discussion about evolution or timescales or any of that. At this point, I'll even let you be a theistic evolutionist if you want to. I'm not, but if you want to, okay. God created the heavens and the earth. And what this passage is saying is that for someone who was not tainted with sin, that would be obvious. Not just if they thought real hard about it, it would be obvious. In the same way that if I put this in the middle of a deserted island and you were shipwrecked, and you stumbled upon this watch in the middle of that deserted island, your first thought was, where are the people? Because you know, you know that there was not any natural process that brought this watch into existence. So you would go looking for the people who had brought Built, created, whatever word you want, that watch. Because you know it didn't happen by accident. And what this passage is telling us is that the invisible attributes of God, I've always liked that phrase, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. Does that sound odd to you? That something is invisible and yet you can see it clearly? That's what we should see. What should we see? His eternal power and his divine nature. At this point, we can have a long discussion about what creation reveals to us about God. And it reveals a lot. He is a God of order. He is a God of power. He is a creative God. 
All these attributes, in fact, there is a whole field of philosophy or theology called natural theology, which is looking at things from a non-biblical perspective and understanding what the world teaches us about God and law and humanity. It is called natural law. Theologians talk about the revelation of God in two big categories. The first is common revelation. That is what God has demonstrated to everyone. Okay? It says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Rain is there for all of us. We all see the created order. We all see that we have some sense of right and wrong. More about that to come. I've always thought it curious. You know, once I started having more and more kids and they did things that ticked off one of the other kids and one of them would come and they'd go to me and they'd say, that's not fair. I mean, they just blurt that out. That's not fair. And, you know, we have a tendency to look at that instance and go, well, you're silly because it was fair, or you're right, or something. My question was always, has always been, what gave them this idea that it was supposed to be fair? What gave us this idea that life was supposed to be just? It's interesting, I read a book review just yesterday. A um, guy that has his PhD in uh, biology of some sort has written a book about the fear of God. No, he's not a Christian. I think he's an atheist. But he's talking about why a fear of God is good and important for society. That's weird. Think about that one. Why would you think that way? Well, I know why you think that way. Because an understanding of God and his ways is implanted inside of you. And to the extent that we try to suppress it, it just bulges out at different places all the time. The wrath of God is being revealed because we in our unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. The truth is that there is a God, there is a creator, and it reveals things about him. So there is common revelation and then there is special revelation which we have in the scripture we have in the person of jesus christ etc etc more about that later the wrath of god is being revealed because the truth of who god is is being suppressed for his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world since the day it was created we ought to have known that there was a creator that made it that native in Africa ought to have known that there was a creator of some sort. And you know what? He did. But he suppressed the truth like all of us and he went chasing after something else. Verse 21. For although they knew God, stop, they knew God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let me give you, in two minutes, my version of the history of religion. But before that, I'll give you what the world believes is the history of religion in one minute. In the beginning, we evolved. 
We are dumb. We are ignorant, I guess is the right word. A lightning strike comes. It hits a tree over there. It catches on fire. I'm scared to death. I run into my cave, and I think there's something bigger than me. That awe, that fear of the unknown says, I'm going to put a label on that, and I'm going to worship it, whatever it is. So I start worshiping something that I don't know, but I know that it's something. And pretty soon I start making lists of the things that I'm worshiping, and I give them names, and I call them gods. And it may be the god of the sun and the god of the lightning and the god of the water. Wait a minute, what did I just say? That would be Zeus, Neptune, and... I mentioned a third, whatever it was. You see the picture. And I start giving names to them. And I start giving attributes to them. What attributes do I give them? Well, what do I know? Mine. So I start giving them human attributes, only bigger. I'm strong, they must be stronger. I'm smart, they must be smarter. I get ticked off, they must get ticked off even more. I like women, they must like women even more. Go read the Greek myths. It's all there. Pretty soon, smart people took this to its logical conclusion. Well, if they're big, there's got to be a God that's bigger. And if that God is bigger, there's got to be a God bigger. Let's take this to its logical conclusion, and there's got to be a God that is at the top of the pecking order. In fact... He's probably so far at the top that the others may not even really exist. And thus became monotheism. And we have the three great monotheistic religions in the world today. Christianity, well, in order, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so today we understand that there's only one God. Or do we? Because, you know, it all started back with that lightning hitting that tree. Well, we know what causes the lightning today. You know, the static discharge of the potential energy stored up in the clouds, and it discharges this way, and it causes this event, and you can hook the meters on it, you can measure it, and we know what. Why are we bothering with that? Why don't we just get rid of the whole idea of God? Where we are, according to this theory, is in monotheism, where we're going is getting rid of the whole idea of God. The assumption, I mean, at a minimum, you can start at the French Revolution, the Enlightenment. The belief was we will outgrow belief in God in total. You go read a book, an anthropology book, and something close to that is how they will describe the forming of religion. Yesterday I pulled out some old time life book about the history of humanity, and that's exactly where it started. Okay? The cave dwellers cowering in fear, working their way up to building cathedrals. Let me tell you the biblical version of this. Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, had fellowship with God. They knew God. Not some abstract thing, not some force of some sort. They knew God. The reality of who God is, was, and will be was evident to everyone. And then they sinned, and all of humanity fell. We will talk about that in about three chapters. And because of that, we as humanity have turned away from the truth and have tried to fill that void with a variety of different things, worshiping different things, trying to determine moral codes apart from a belief in that God, it isn't that we started with this polytheism and we worked our way to monotheism. We started with monotheism 
and we've become corrupted. Why have we become corrupted? Because we took the truth of God and we suppressed it. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. To give honor to God is to proclaim his glory. To proclaim his glory. How do we glorify God? By worship? How do we do that? Romans chapter 12. Present your body living sacrifice that you may know God's will because that is a pleasing act of worship. There is a God and we worship him that brings honor to him. That is what is required of us as creatures, as created beings. In addition, we are to show gratitude. We did not give him thanks. I have said this in here before. You sit down to eat. Why do we bless the food? Because we're acknowledging the fact that that food would not exist apart from God. You remember that scene out of the uh, movie Shenandoah with Jimmy Stewart? He sits down to pray with his family. His wife is dead. He goes through the prayer. Thank you for this food. I don't know why, because we, had, we were the ones that had to work to get it. But he had told his wife he was going to pray every day at the meal, and he did it, even though he believed that he was the one that... The book of Deuteronomy tells us that it is God that gives you the strength to earn that food that you have before you. It is God that gives you the air that you breathe. It gives God that gives you the water that you drink. It is God that gives you the relationships that give meaning to your life. It is God that gives dot, 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 fill in the blank with everything. And we refuse to acknowledge him and give him thanks. Why? Because we think we did it. We have taken the truth and we have suppressed it. Now, you would think if we stopped worshiping God, we'd just stop worshiping. No. We are made to worship. We are created to worship. G.K. Chesterton says, when people stop worshiping, believing, when they stop believing in God, they don't believe nothing, they'll believe anything. When we stopped worshiping God, it isn't that we stopped worshiping, we just started worshiping everything. We gave up the immortal God to worship mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Idolatry, idolatry is, I hate to put sins in order, but it's kind of at the top of the list. Because it is idolatry that drives us to worship something else, that drives us to think that we can act some other way than what God has required. That's why we spent all of last year going through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and into Joshua, and over and over and over and over again, God told them, don't go after the idols. Not in Egypt, not in the land you're traveling through, and not in the land you're going to. Because he knew that in our unrighteousness, we're going to suppress the truth, and we're going to worship something else. Became futile in their thinking. Futile in their thinking. What is futility? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We sometimes divide people into smart people, really smart people, less smart people, and the really less smart people. And we want to think that all the smart people believe just like me, because I'm a smart person. 
And the reality is they don't. The reality is that if you start in the wrong place, you're going to end up in the wrong place no matter how smart you are. I could give you a map of New York City and tell you, find your way from here to my house. And you could stare at that map all day long from now to eternity and you wouldn't find the way to my house because my house is not in New York City. I started you with the wrong map. I teach worldview classes and we refer to that as a worldview. If I begin with the idea that there is no God, I can be the smartest person in the world, I can think all day long, I can write the most learned books, and I, I mean, I, I am smart. Don't, you know, don't say, well, they're dumb. You can be very smart. But I'm not going to end up with a proper understanding of what it means to be right with God. My thinking becomes futile, it becomes worthless. And I think we'll pick it up right there next week. What is the conclusion of all of this? The wrath of God is real. There are those who want to believe that God, in his love, eventually is going to save everyone. And that lie is what gives us the out to not share the gospel. That lie is what leads us to worthless and futile thinking. The wrath of God is being revealed. And if we are going to not be the target of the wrath of God. It is because we have acknowledged the bad news so we can accept the good news of the gospel. And the good news is, in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have in fact saved us. Thank you for clothing us in the righteousness of Christ that we as sinful human beings can enter the presence of a holy God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.